Welcome to the first episode of the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. And in this episode, we'll take a look at coronavirus in Iran and how the pandemic has affected Iran's economy. My guest today is Bijan Khajapur, a managing partner of Eurasian Nexus Partners in Vienna, Austria. Bijan is an economist by education, and he has written and commented extensively on the Iranian economy. He joins us from Vienna today. Bijan, welcome to the Iran podcast. Hi, thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Thank you for joining us. Um, let's discuss the current state of Iran's economy. We know with the coronavirus, every country on earth has been impacted, including here the U.S., I'm sure they're in Austria. But Iran is also in uh, a very unique circumstances, probably one of the few countries in the world who's dealing with this economic issue under U.S. economic sanctions. And we also know the declining price of oil and all of those are playing a role. Could you Give us a lay of the land of how the Iranian economy is doing and has been doing in the past few months under coronavirus. Yeah. As, as you said, Iran is experiencing three parallel uh, crises, economic crises. One is obviously the, uh, the consequences of the U.S. Uh, maximum pressure campaign, the various sanctions that have been imposed on Iran. Uh, the second one is the coronavirus and its economic implications. And the third one, the collapse of the global oil prices. If we look at the period before the coronavirus hit Iran, uh, meaning before February, Iran had gone through about 20, 22 months uh, of uh, the negative implications of the U.S. sanctions. Uh, that meant that the country had experienced two years of uh, negative growth uh, and high inflation, the two main consequences of, of the U.S. sanctions. Uh, and uh, the interesting fact was that Around um, the end of 2019, the first signs were emerging that Iran may actually come out of the, the so-called period of stagflation, that means stagnation and inflation, uh, by the end of 2020. But then when uh, the coronavirus and also the, the oil price crisis emerged, Iran uh, went deeper into uh, into the stagflation. Unfortunately, the outlook is that the country, the economy will uh, decline by another 6-7% this year and potentially return to growth by 2021. But that is too early to say because it depends on how long the current crisis uh, will continue. But essentially, Iran is in a uh, state of stagflation, which has negative consequences on uh, uh, unemployment, uh, on inflation, on purchasing power. Uh, so it's a it's a deep crisis that the country is in. Could you tell us, uh, maybe unpack a little bit on how various factors, U.S. sanctions, economic sanctions, crippling economic sanctions, as the U.S. administration would like to call them, combined together with a lot of mismanagement of the funds and also corruption inside the country in Iran. Could you uh, tell us how these are impacting negatively on the economy? Sure. Um I think the first and foremost aspect 
uh, is what you called mismanagement and corruption. I always add a third uh, term to that, which is incompetence. Uh, there is a lot of uh, incompetence uh, within the Iranian state in managing uh, the economic potential of the country. We know Iran is a very rich economy, very rich in terms of natural resources, in terms of human resources, also in terms of geostrategic opportunities. I always say Iran is the country that connects two of the most important oil and gas hubs in the world, the Persian Gulf and the Caspian Sea. Iran also has a lot of uh, trade opportunities in its region. So mismanagement is definitely one factor. Corruption and incompetence goes with that in one package. But the other side of the coin uh, are, are external uh, sanctions and external pressure. Um, we know that uh, in the roughly two years after the implementation of the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, uh, Iran actually experienced uh, amazing growth. And, and when we look at the indicators in those two years, meaning 2016 and 2017, uh, the Iranian economy grew by about 4% in one of the years and more than 12% in the second year. Inflation was brought down from previously about 30% to about 7%. So you, you see that once the sanctions uh, and the external pressure is taken away uh, from the country, from the economy, there is a lot more potential for economic growth and, and improved management patterns. But the problem is that as soon as sanctions hit, uh, they actually become the the excuse for a lot of corrupt practices in the country, a lot of smuggling, a lot of money laundering, a lot of um, corrupt practices because the government cannot access its own resources and cannot trade under normal circumstances. So in a way, they they each have a, a negative impact, but in in at the end of the day, they go hand in hand. And that is what has, has sort of... Uh, compounded the negative impact of the sanctions at the current junction. Uh, speaking of the JCPOA or the historic Iran deal basically made under the Obama administration that President Trump pulled out of about two years ago, um, could you tell us a little bit about how this all unfolded? Because I think we tend to forget that the current regime of sanctions that were reimposed on Iran were lifted under the nuclear deal and Iran was abiding by the deal. But Donald Trump decided to basically pull out and reimpose sanctions. Can you remind those who know and explain to those who don't how the past two years have unfolded and basically with the pullout of the deal? Mm -hmm. It's true. The, the JCPOA, um, the, the most important um, consequence of the JCPOA, which was signed in 2015 and then implemented in 2016, uh, was that Iran could more freely um, trade with the world. Iran had regained access um, to the international financial system because these sanctions in, in a different form existed before the JCPOA. So uh, Iran had actually experienced these sanctions before. And as a result of the negotiation process uh, through the JCPOA, 
uh, Iran uh, basically managed to get the Western powers, especially to lift the sanctions from previous uh, round of uh, you know pressure on Iran. Uh, that meant that starting in January 2016, um, Iran could again export oil and gas freely. Iran again could have access to the international financial system. And a lot of the sanctions, like sanctions on the uh, shipping lines, on insurance, uh, the insurance sector, etc., etc., were lifted. And the Iranian business community and also the Iranian government were able to revive their old trade and investment links with the rest of the world. And that led to, uh, as I mentioned, to uh, to amazing growth, economic growth uh, for the country. And also Iran actually managed to um, develop some new uh, sectors in the country. For example, the, the amazing growth in the tourism sector was a new phenomenon. Iran was always a, a country... Uh, that attracted tourists, but sometimes because of uh, political issues, sometimes because of regional security issues, but sometimes because of sanctions, the tourism sector hadn't been developed, but after the JCPOA, it was developed again. But the reimposition of the U.S. sanctions after the U.S. withdrawal from um, the JCPOA in May 2018 created new barriers. It created uh, uh, new limitations on Iran's oil exports, um, which is one of the main uh, sources of hard currency generation for the, for the economy. It created uh, huge problems for uh, Iran's um, access to international funds uh, and also a direct relationship with uh, with international banks and, and financial institutions. And then one after the other, the, the, the old sanctions were reimposed, as I said, especially sanctions on, on the shipping sector, on the insurance sector, uh, and it has gone on. In fact, today there are more sanctions on the Iranian economy compared to the pre-JCPOA time. For example, uh, industries like the cement industry and the automotive industry, etc., etc. All the key industries of the country are under sanctions. There are only two uh, sectors that are not sanctioned. Uh, that These are the agricultural foods sector and also the pharmaceutical sector. But even in these two sectors that are theoretically not sanctioned, uh, because there are banking sanctions and there are insurance sanctions and shipping sanctions, it's almost impossible for a, an international company uh, to directly engage the Iranian market. So you see that at the end of the day, almost all um, key sectors and key trade and investment activities and financial activities uh, are, are severely restricted, uh, not because other countries, meaning especially European and non-US countries, have sanctioned Iran, but because they are just afraid of the consequences, especially consequences in the financial sector. The US Treasury has fined a number of international banks for um, for uh, dealing directly with Iran, and that's why there is a major hesitation in especially larger banks and uh, companies to work with Iran. So that has created an enormous uh, uh, restricted framework for for um, interaction with the rest of the world, and that obviously has led to a lot of uh, economic uh, downturn and economic uh, consequences in the country.
Well, thank you for um, explaining that topic. I want to get a little bit into more details. As you said, there are humanitarian exemptions um, for food and drugs, medicine, not necessarily medical equipment, but medicine. But my own reporting and multiple research, and as you said um, in your comments, uh, these exemptions have not been enough. And because of the banking and financial uh, sanctions, the import of um, especially medicine into the country has been limited somewhat by sanctions. But then as a response to that, the U.S. has opened this humanitarian channel with the Swiss government, with the help of the Swiss government. I believe they've had one transaction. And there's also Instex, uh, channel opened by the Europeans to somehow basically ease the burden of sanctions or go around these U.S. sanctions, if you may. Can you explain uh, the mechanism of these two channels and how effective they're going to be and why are they not enough for basically the humanitarian items that Iran needs, especially now under the corona crisis? So, yes, I mean, let's look at the, the the realities and facts without these two channels that you mentioned to figure out why these channels are important. So before these two channels, one, the Swiss humanitarian trade assistance channel and also the, the mechanism that the Europeans have put in place called INSTEX, before these two entities emerged, the key issue was one could engage Iran and, and plan the exportation of uh, pharmaceuticals or, or, or uh, agricultural products. But the challenge started especially with the transfer of funds. So an Iranian company that wanted to pay for imported items could not do so because no bank in the world or no major bank in the world was prepared to receive funds from Iran, even indirectly. The, we know that the banking sector has, has evolved over the past few years, and it's become more and more challenging generally, not just in Iran-related issues, because of uh, money laundering uh, issues and, and terrorism uh, financing issues. Uh, the, you need to declare where the m money is coming from um, and what it is flowing for. So if you can't engage uh, in direct payments, that meant that Iran had to go through indirect routes. Indirect routes meant um, that, first of all, the cost of every transaction was much higher than in a normal scenario. And secondly, a, a growing number of international banks were just hesitant to receive that money. So the average, for example, Western company that exported to Iran because the normal so-called house bank of that company was not prepared to receive funds like that, they had to go and open an account in a new bank. And in that new bank, as soon as they said, we are opening this account for trade with Iran, again, a, a, a growing number of banks were hesitant to open those accounts. So on paper, it was said that uh, humanitarian uh, trade would not be subject to sanctions. But because of the banking uh, uh, bottlenecks, and as I said, because of shipping bottlenecks uh, and insurance bottlenecks, it was extremely difficult. That's why um, the creation of Instex and the Swiss humanitarian uh, route was important to sort of reduce or 
almost sort of completely eliminate the need for financial transactions between Iran and the outside world. So what did they do or what are they trying to do? They are saying, okay, there are importers and exporters on both sides. So when an Iranian exporter exports items to Europe, that money has to go from Europe to Iran. And when an, a European exporter exports items to to Iran, uh, the money has to come back. So instead of having the flow of funds between different jurisdictions, these channels try to make the transactions between uh, the importer and exporter on the Iranian side and the importer and exporter on the European side. Now, this is a good uh, approach because it takes out the the transaction of funds over borders, and you don't have to get engage banks, but it still uh, creates a problem on two levels. One is, again, the banks who are receiving or paying money outside Iran, they still have a reference to Iran in the transaction, because you have to say why this money is being transferred from bank A to bank B. So some banks are hesitant and, and it creates limitations on which banks can 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 uh, play a role. The second uh, reality is, well, between Europe and Iran, if we just focus on Europe and Iran, where Instex plays the key role or plans to play the key role, the volume of Iranian exports to Europe is only a probably 20% of the potential volume of European exports to Europe. So you don't have a balance between these two amounts. Uh, and that creates a headache. That's why Iran has been trying to find ways of generating funds outside Iran that could flow into these channels. That includes also the application uh, to the International Monetary Fund to receive a $5 billion loan, because theoretically, if that Iran received that loan, Iran could put that loan through these channels, have some funds or credit inside those channels, so that as soon as something was exported to Iran from especially the Western world, uh, that it could be paid out of Instex without any money flowing out of Iran. So it's a bit technical, but that shows that the limitations are multi-dimensional. It's not a sort of single sort of track interaction. You have to think about uh, the roles that the banks will play. You have to think about the roles that the different entities will play. There was also at one point uh, one challenge because essentially the key player for international transactions in Iran is the central bank of Iran. And, and, and any of these structures that you put in place will have to deal with the central bank of Iran at some point. And the U.S. sanctioned the Central Bank Bank of Iran. So again, you have banks who, even for non-sanctioned goods, try to engage Iran, but then end up uh, being told by the lawyers that they cannot in interact with the Central Bank of Iran. So there are a number of obstacles, but still Iran and also the remaining signatories to the JCPOA have tried various um, routes to 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 facilitate such payments. But the, the problems remain. Also, Instex and the Swiss channel, even though they are both active now, they are not managing to 
to process as many transactions as, as are needed at the current stage. Just to explain the IMF loan to those who may not have heard about it, Iran is facing, as you explained, uh, the government is facing a massive or historic, I would say, budget deficit because of all of these factors. And they have requested a $5 billion loan from the IMF, an emergency loan, uh, which is something they haven't done since the 1960s. This is the first time since the 1960s. And uh, I want to mention Democratic Senator from California, Dianne Feinstein, has um, issued statements and has written op-eds, encouraged the Trump administration to let Iran take this loan under the condition that the spending, uh, there will be some monitoring, basically, on the spending of the loan. So as many of uh, the more hawkish policymakers on Iran uh, say, the money that's borrowed to deal with the corona crisis doesn't end up in uh, Iran's regional adventures and other countries and for proxies and all of that. And as you're explaining, uh, that was one of the proposals from Iran to try to get this $5 billion loan through, for example, Instex. Um, what is the status of that loan? Because the Trump administration has said that they were going to um, block it or not let it happen. And is there any other channels for Iran to try to get access to this kind of financial assistance? Well, the state of that application is that as far as i know it hasn't really been put to the uh to the board of the imf uh, iran is a shareholder of imf uh, and has every right to do so as you said it hasn't done hasn't applied for a loan for over 60 years um, and uh, iran even has reserves in in the imf that uh more than entitle Iran to to receive that kind of a loan. The U.S. is obviously a large shareholder of IMF, but still not large enough to block such a loan. I think U.S. the U.S. has sixteen percent of of the IMF shares. So the 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 big question is how will the other shareholders, especially the leading shareholders, um, especially the Europeans, uh, act in this process? I mean, will they allow the U.S. to bully everyone and that way uh, create uh, a scenario where Iran will be denied? Um, or will they allow this loan to go through? As you said, there is absolutely no way if if the if this loan is processed through instex or similar structures where the western stakeholders uh, have control and can really monitor how this money is being uh, spent there is no way that iran can spend this money on other issues and and but the rejection of this application will confirm the perception among the more conservative and hardline elements in iran that at the end of the day the Western powers are there to to humi- humiliate Iran and put pressure on Iran, and then you will have more and, and more and more anti-Western sentiment uh, inside the country, not just among the regime principles, but also among the people. But Iran theoretically also has other sources. Uh, as a result of the sanctions that we discussed, especially the banking sanctions that we discussed, um, large sums of Iranian uh, uh, funds uh, are actually blocked in international accounts in, in various um, geographies in Europe, in, in Japan, in South Korea, even some in China. So 
potentially Iran uh, could also try to use diplomacy uh, with these different governments and with the banks to try to secure some of these funds. But again here, both the fear of being fined by by the U.S. or the fear of be- becoming a target for harsher sanctions by by the U.S. administration or you know the uh, the politics of each of these countries uh, uh, and the bullying of the U.S. Uh, are impeding these types of process. So Iran actually uh, has international funds, but right now it has difficulties accessing those funds. What about domestic funds? There's a lot of talk in Washington that Iran actually does have resources that the Supreme Leader himself, Ayatollah Khamenei, is sitting on billions of dollars. The numbers vary depending on who you listen to, but mostly coming from the right or the more hawkish circles here in Washington, basically claiming that Iran doesn't need um, this kind of financial resources, um, be it the IMF or any other kind of assistance and they should just tap into uh, whatever resources that's claimed the country has inside. Can you explain and unpack that a little bit? Sure. Um, it's true that Iran is a is a very rich country and, and uh, the government, the various uh, state organizations, including foundations, etc., uh, do have uh, assets to their name. But whoever understands uh, sort of economic uh, realities and financial realities uh, will know that you don't necessarily keep all your assets in cash. Um, So you have a lot of properties, you have a lot of company shares, uh, you may have a lot of, uh, uh, you know, other assets that are not necessarily liquid. It means, yes, some assets are liquid. If you, for example, look at the Iranian government, um, in light of the... uh, expected budget deficit. Um, The Iranian government has started selling some of its assets on the stock exchange, uh, including company shares, but also a number of properties, uh, etc. So there is is a possibility of cashing some of these assets, but that's not the, the way you you manage these uh, these types of challenges. Um, if you have assets that may um, may have a better value in the future, you would use uh, a loan uh, uh, or, for example, international bonds um, to to finance your your budget deficit or your financial gap in that moment, and you know that you have the asset base to repay in the future. Problem is that the Iranian government doesn't have access to those international markets. If it can't even get a loan from the IMF where it's a shareholder, um, then how can it go, let's say, to international stock exchanges and issue some government bonds? Exactly what other governments are doing right now, including the U.S. government, because of the need to finance this uh, period of uh, coronavirus uh, situation. So um, those assets exist. I mean, many of these statements that you hear are uh, certainly exaggerated. Uh, In Iran, uh, when you look at an asset base, the first question is, at which exchange rate you convert those assets into into hard currency? I mean, we have an exchange rate, uh, the official governmental exchange rate is 
one quarter of the free market exchange rate. So if you take, if you say, you say I have an asset base, which at the lower exchange rate is worth $20 billion, at the real exchange rate, it will be worth only $5 billion. In, in Iranian currency, it would be the same amount, but it depends how you convert it. So there is a lot of exaggeration and there is a lot of ignorance about how you manage economic uh, crises. You don't necessarily go and cash everything that you have. You, you try to take a loan. And in fact, the government is also try using the domestic bond market to finance some of, the, uh, some of the issues. And it's interesting that for the first time, as far as I can see, there is also a process where the so-called semi-state institutions, various religious foundations and revolutionary foundations that even they are selling some of their assets on the Tehran Stock Exchange. We will have to wait and see what they use these assets for. But my uh, prediction is that some of those new assets, some of the sort of liquidated assets, some of that money will be used to, um, to offer more and more charitable services to the poorer um, uh, social classes. But some of it will also be used um, to acquire the shares that the government is selling. So maybe I should explain that in Iran, the so-called semi-state institutions are not accountable to the government. So you have uh, basically three parallel economic sectors. You have the government, which is still probably the, uh, the, the largest economic block in the entire country. You have the semi-state institutions. As I said, you have their uh, revolutionary uh, foundations. You have religious foundations. And you also have military foundations and organizations. Those Semi-state institutions are not accountable to the government. They are accountable to the supreme leader, but there is still diversity within uh, the types of strategies, economic strategies they have. And then the third sector is obviously the private sector. So you have a situation where through the current crisis and the, through the current financial pressure, the government has to sell some of its assets to finance the budget deficit. If some of those assets are acquired by the semi-state sector, which I think is happening, it will eventually mean that the semi-state sector will be more powerful in the economic equation of the country, both because of the asset base, but also because they will do more and more the charitable work that the government should be doing. And that way you have a shift also in the composition and the balance of power. I just wanted to mention that in the face of this hardship, the Europeans have offered at least millions of dollars in aid to Iran. Some European NGOs are active on the ground, uh, basically helping the Iranians acquire necessary medical equipment and other items um, under U.S. sanctions. The U.N. stepped in, the World Health Organization stepped in, sent uh, coronavirus test kits to Iran. Japan helped the Iranians, even some of Iran's regional foes, countries that don't necessarily have very close relations around, like Kuwait um, made some financial aid, and the UAE also helped Iran under the crisis. And uh, we have a, a couple of minutes left. Finally, I wanted to ask you what you think will happen, especially to the Iranian economy, in the next few months until the U.S. election 
under this combination of maximum pressure and the corona crisis. And then what will happen, let's say, if President Trump does get elected in the second four years of a President Trump? Would, there, would Iran be able to survive another four years of maximum pressure? And alternatively, if, let's say, Joe Biden wins the presidency, what do you think would happen if a Democrat, if he enters the White House? First of all, those who predict that the Iranian economy will collapse under these uh, crises uh, fail to see do two things. One is... Um, Iran has is very rich, as I said. I always use the analogy of an of an Iranian family. The average Iranian family, uh, uh, when when it's doing well, invests in a number of assets that can be sold uh, to help the family when the uh, financial situation is is more challenging. Uh, those assets are carpets, gold, uh, hard currency, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The government as a whole also acts like that. So there are always assets and, and opportunities that can help the government out of the crisis, and that's happening. I mentioned it earlier, uh, the sale of property and shares, etc., is helping the government fill the, uh, the budget deficit. The second fact is the Iranian economy is very diverse, and this diversity helps. Many uh, have the misperception that Iran is an oil and gas economy, which is not true. Iran is actually a service based economy. And within the service-based economy, there is a lot more uh, resilience and a lot more flexibility to adjust to new realities. Uh, what will happen is that uh, the, the current stagflation will continue for the next few months, maybe for the next year, but it's not going to lead to, a, to an economic collapse. It's going to lead to a greater awareness in the country that they need to manage their resources more efficiently. On the positive side, there could be a, a push to um, correct the structures in a way that the, the volume of corruption and mismanagement and the negative consequences of these negative phenomena uh, are reduced. Uh, there is also a lot of potential to increase efficiency in the economy. So I think the economy will manage, but still suffer, especially through higher inflation and, and economic decline. Now, will Iran sort of come back to the negotiating table knowing that obviously addressing the sanctions issue will help Iran to consolidate the potential of a growth economy? Uh, I think Iran would only come back under the right uh, circumstances. Iran will not negotiate from a position of weakness, and Iran will uh, not uh, negotiate uh, in, a, in a setting where it feels that um, the, the terms are being dictated. So Iran will be interested, whether it's a re-elected re President Trump or, or a, a Biden uh, administration, but I think it's important to understand that the, the prerequisites from the Iranian perspective are a situation where Iran uh, is... Uh, respected, is not uh, bullied, uh, and where um, Iran's 
priorities which are of economic nature uh, are are respected clearly and and I see a push towards maybe a negotiated settlement after the US elections but I do feel that there is still too much misperception and I would call it naive analysis in Washington about how the Iranian economy works and how the Iranian political um, culture works. If there is a new uh, understanding of uh, these aspects, I do see uh, potential because at the end of the day, the Iranians would like to have much more sophisticated and much more positive economic outlook than what they have right now. Bijan, thank you very much for joining the Iran podcast. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Bijan Khajapur, economist and managing partner of Eurasian Nexus Partners, joining us from Vienna, Austria. Thank you for listening to the first episode of the Iran podcast. Subscribe to us on your podcast apps and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.